0: It's time for class.
1: Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day.
0: This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged, with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View.
1: Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged, I am your host, your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist, L.J. Williams, and I am so delighted that you made it to class this morning. This morning, we're going to continue the conversation of black women and suffrage following the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment this past week. I'm also really excited to share with you a conversation I had with Dr. Martha Jones, who is a professor of history at Johns Hopkins University and author of a new book that I've already pre-ordered. I've already read like the teaser pieces of. I'm really looking forward to this. It's called Vanguard. How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. It drops September 8th, and you can check the link on social media, on the website and everything, and make sure you pre-order. And when you come back from vacation, it should be sitting right there for you. But first, let's talk about the convention The Democratic convention that is coming up this week, I believe, is the Republican convention, which will be a totally different experience if you um, are expecting it to be the same. Um, Yeah, I'm sorry to tell you that it's going to be a bit different. But for the Democratic convention, did you watch it? Did you feel energized from it? Whose speech spoke to you the most? Well, I can share for me personally that Michelle Obama's words and passion and sincerity is what resonated with me the most. Her hope and belief in this country, her hope and belief in us, <laughs> actually pricked my heart and actually still sits with me days later. It reminded me of another Black woman's Democratic Convention speech. This one from... Hmm, 1976, uh, from the first African-American since Reconstruction to be elected to the Texas Senate and the first black female from the South to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Do you know who I'm talking about? Do you know who I'm talking about? I am talking about uh, the inspiring and powerful words from Barbara Jordan, the first black woman to deliver a keynote speech at a Democratic National Convention from Texas. Take a listen.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for a very warm reception. It was... 144 years ago that members of the Democratic Party first met in convention to select a presidential candidate. Since that time Democrats have continued to convene once every four years and draft a party platform and nominate a presidential candidate. And our meeting this week is a continuation of that tradition. But there is something different about tonight. There is something special about tonight. What is different? What is special? I, Barbara Jordan, am a keynote speaker. Years passed since 1832, and during that time it would have been most unusual for any national political party to ask a Barbara Jordan to deliver a keynote address. But tonight, here I am. And I feel, I feel that notwithstanding the past, that my presence here is one additional bit of evidence that the American dream need not forever be deferred. But now now that I have this grand distinction, what in the world am I supposed to say? I could easily spend this time praising the accomplishments of this party and attacking the Republicans, but I don't choose to do that. I could list the many problems which Americans have. I could list the problems which cause people to feel cynical, angry, frustrated. Problems which include lack of integrity in government, the feeling that the individual no longer counts, the reality of material and spiritual poverty, the feeling that the grand American experiment is failing or has failed. I could recite these problems and then I could sit down and offer no solutions, but I don't choose to do that either. The citizens of America expect more, deserve, and they want more than a recital of problems. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. We are a people in search of a national community. We are a people trying not only to solve the problems of the present, unemployment, inflation, but we are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are attempting to fulfill our national purpose to create and sustain a society in which all of us are equal. <clears throat> throughout, throughout our history, When people have looked for new ways to solve their problems and to uphold the principles of this nation, many times they have turned to political parties. They have often turned to the Democratic Party. What is it? What is it about the Democratic Party that makes it the instrument the people use when they search for ways to shape their future? Well, I believe the answer to that question lies in our concept of governing. Our concept of governing is derived from our view of people. It is a concept deeply rooted in a set of beliefs firmly etched in the national conscience of all of us. Now, what are these beliefs? First. We believe in equality for all and privileges for none. This is a belief, this is a belief that each American, regardless of background, has equal standing in the public forum, all of us. because we believe this idea so firmly, we are an inclusive rather than an exclusive party. Let everybody come. I think it no accident that most of those immigrating to America in the 19th century identified with the Democratic Party. We are a heterogeneous party made up of Americans of diverse backgrounds. We believe that the people are the source of all governmental power, that the authority of the people is to be extended, not restricted. This This can be accomplished only by providing each citizen with every opportunity to participate in the management of the government. They must have that. We believe. We believe that the government, which represents the authority of all the people, not just one interest group, but all the people, has an obligation to actively underscore actively seek to remove those obstacles which would block individual achievement, obstacles emanating from race, sex, economic condition. The government must remove them. Seek to remove them. We. We are a party We are a party of innovation. We do not reject our traditions, but we are willing to adapt to changing circumstances. When change we must. We are willing to suffer the discomfort of change in order to achieve a better future. We have a positive vision of the future founded on the belief that the gap between the promise and reality of America can one day be finally closed. We believe that. This, my friends, is the bedrock of our concept of governing. This is a part of the reason why Americans have turned to the Democratic Party. These are the foundations upon which a national community can be built. Let all understand that these guiding principles cannot be discarded for short-term political gains. They represent what this country is all about They are indigenous to the American idea. And these are principles which are not
1: negotiable. When we come back, I'm going to share with you my conversation with Dr. Martha Jones. But first, check out the story of her first civic action.
0: When I was a teenager, my father ran for our local school board. He was an activist with the NAACP and other civil rights organizations, and he had grown very concerned as he saw the outcomes for black students, which were dismal in our town, um, and contrasted starkly with the outcomes for white students. He sued the town, he wasn't successful, and then he decided to run for school board. And I was a teenager. And so I wasn't sure how I felt about that, which is to say there was my family in a small spotlight. There was my father, his ideas, his work on the front lines. But during the campaign, there I was with flyers and leaflets at the train station and other gathering places in town working on his campaign. What I most remember is election night. We were sent to bed. The counting of the ballots took late into the evening, but I stayed up with one ear open and I could hear him on the phone um, getting the news um, that he had lost, that he had not won the election. And uh, my heart broke for him, but the next morning he was undaunted. And it was a real lesson, right, in what it takes to um, exercise leadership, what it takes to put yourself out there to vie for public office when nothing is promised to you but how he continued his own civic work even in the face of that defeat so i guess you say that you would say that flitting from my father was my very first experience in civic participation
2: All the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world Like when the t-shirt, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together Who is the t-shirt? I go let you know Who is the t-shirt?
1: Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams, your neighborhood political strategist and civics teacher. But I am laying down my chalk today um, in order to bring you this conversation that I had with Dr. Martha Jones talking about black women's suffrages and the moment that we are in discussing black women's political activism. Thank you so very much for joining me for this conversation. I'm very excited to talk to you. I know I I said that we only have a certain amount of time for us to talk, but maybe once the corona is over, I can come and audit a class and nerd out (laughs) with you Mm -hmm. at at some point. But as I mentioned to you, I read and have Birthright Citizenship. I'm really excited about this new book of yours that's coming. Talk to us a bit about Vanguard, which drops September 8th.
0: I wrote Vanguard because I knew two things. I knew that in 2020, we would be in an election year and that Black women would be exercising a kind of outsized influence on politics, even if I didn't know who all the candidates might be. And I also knew we were going to be in an anniversary year of the 19th Amendment, and I didn't want African-American women's uh, story of voting rights to be overlooked in this year. So uh, Vanguard tells 200 years of Black women's political history, helping us to understand the traditions, the movements, the struggles out of which figures like Stacey Abrams, Ayanna Presley, and of course Kamala Harris. These are the political traditions out of which they come and Vanguard tries to tell that story.
1: I think that's a very important point. And just to go to the history of this for a bit, one, I've watched a number of interviews that you've done and read a number of pieces that you've done thus far. And you talk about black women sitting at the intersection of the 15th and the 19th Amendment in Managing both race relations and the issue of being a woman here in the United States. Talk to us a bit that just before 19th Amendment is passed, before even 15th Amendment is passed, Mm -hmm. I try to tell the story here on the show often that women, particularly black women, didn't wake up with a political voice just recently, like that this Mm -hmm. activism, this engagement has been a part of our tradition here and things that we don't don't even think about as considered civic participation. You don't consider Underground Railroad or anti-slavery movements as civic participation, but it is. Talk a bit about that from that historical context that lays the stage, as you mentioned, before we even get to the additional amendments and to the modern time today.
0: When I started the book, I really in part was going in search of Um, the origins of an idea that today we oftentimes refer to as intersectionality. So the notion that black women can't be broken apart into one identity or another, but that to fully appreciate and understand who black women are in our political landscape, we have to appreciate the way in which racism and sexism operate simultaneously and together in powerful ways in American politics. So I went in search of the origins of that idea. And before I'm done, I'm all the way back at the beginning of the 19th century. And I'm writing about women who really are um, pioneers of a political philosophy that is still deeply relevant today. The view that neither race nor sex should have any uh, role to play in um, dispensing political power Um, In the United States. And it is black women who are making that argument. And of course, they're doing so out of their own experiences, drawing upon two things, two things that come together importantly, in the sense that they are looking for a way to make a keen and essential contribution to, there it is, anti-slavery or its early civil rights or its church politics and the development of an institution like the AME Church. Black women strain against the sorts of limits that people place on them because they want to help build a better future for Black Americans and a better future for American democracy. And so they are going to develop a philosophy that attempts to get them right at the center of those dynamics.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned just in the previews that I've seen of the book so far, you mentioned women. I think it's really important to name names, particularly because the names that are part of our civil rights or Black Women Empowerment lexicon are so small. We mm-hmm. only talk about a certain sect, and this is also within African-American studies in general, right? There are the giants, but not that there are these additional players that sort of help set the stage for those giants whose names we know now. And you mentioned Maria Stewart, mm-hmm. who was the first woman to speak. You mentioned black women who sued for their freedom and won and actually not only freed themselves, <laughs> but then their action of freeing themselves actually Freed
0: uh, everybody in the state. Yes. Hester Lane in New York City, right? It's a phenomenal story, right? Very much a, a companion, but really a precursor to the story of Harriet Tubman that we know better. Hester Lane migrates to New York from state of Maryland. She becomes an entrepreneur there. She has some success in business and she basically uses the proceeds of her business to return to Maryland and to Bargain, to barter, to cajole, to win people's freedom and bring them to New York. That in and of itself would make her a remarkable figure to remember. But Lane also has political ambitions and she is active in the American Anti Slavery Society and will vie for high office in that organization only to be disappointed, only to be rejected when it comes to leadership in the American anti-slavery society. And so it's an example of both the tremendous courage and ingenuity of Black women figures, but also an example of the ways in which not everyone in American politics, even anti-slavery politics, is ready yet for Black women's leadership.
1: Yeah. And so those women, like you mentioned, Maria Stewart, Sarah Mapp Douglas, Sarah Parker mm-hmm. Remond, all formerly enslaved women who also uh, rejected. And we're going to talk about in a minute just the pushback you get from your own people mm-hmm. <laughs> um, about our political voice as well. And I find it interesting and I try to remind people that that the story or black women's political activism doesn't begin with fighting for the right to cast the vote for a Republican or a Democrat that that political power that our ancestors were fighting for was for the ability to control their own destiny. And similar to my belief that anytime you're trying to engage people in, uh, whether it's electoral politics or organizing in general, you don't start with telling them what they ought to be doing. We (laughs) see a lot of that happening now. It's just like you either vote for Biden and Harris or you're for the racist. And I'm like, wait, can we get to the... (laughs) Can we get to the issue that matters to them first and to make the, and make the actual argument as to ha- no, we don't have time for that. Okay, But I wanted to talk a bit about that for black women as well because they we didn't begin with demanding just a vote. There were voices, and as you mentioned, also fighting the institutions that we were a part of, for example, in the church.
0: Yes, and this might be a surprising place for some readers to discover um, the beginnings of Black women's voting rights activism. But for me, there's no separating the kinds of struggles that Black women wage, for example, in Black Methodist churches from the kinds of political work that those same women will do at the end of the 19th century. So I write about a figure like Jarena Lee, who called to preach by none other than God and confronts resistance, objections and more from the men in the AME church. We're very fortunate because Jarena Lee publishes a memoir where she recounts her experiences. And she really says straightforwardly, why should it be somehow out of bounds for women to want to preach? Can't women be called by God as men are? And she's a good preacher, it's important to say, right? (laughs) She's very good at what she does. But she inspires then an uprising, a modest one, but not unimportant, an uprising of women within um, the AME church who... Organized together in the 1840s and petition again and again to secure preaching licenses for those women who want to preach. They need legitimacy, they need protection, they need the, the stamp of approval, if you will, from the denomination. And they win in 1848. So this is without a doubt for me the kind of sin which black women are not only working through powerful ideas about who they are and who they can be in public life, including in politics, but it's the place where they are learning the the skills, the techniques, negotiation, petition, allyship, and a lot more. Uh, That are required to make politics in any sphere. And now anyone who is a part of a faith community knows that our faith communities are laden with politics and black women know that too, even in the early 19th century, and it becomes a place where they really establish themselves.
1: So let's fast forward a, a bit in the timeline. One of the other aspects of our history that I'm really can go down the rabbit hole. I think I have half of my bookcases are about this period is not only the Black Women's Club movement, but also the conventions. Boy, do we love conventions. <laughs> so making the connection now as to why in my church organization, the conventions, the regional conventions, and I'm also president of the Brooklyn branch of the NAACP mm-hmm. and and all have roots, and I was like, "Oh, this is why we love convention so much." There's a historical connection to bringing all of us together, just to have these conversations about not only about our plight, but what's the best way forward. How did you find that in that convention space? connecting it to our modern space of the conversation, I actually connected to social media, but I'll let you talk about
0: that. I like that connection, because I think that in the, what is called then the colored convention movement, there's no question, but that they use the, the new media of the day, which is the printing press, right? And the pamphlet, and the pamphlet and the tract as well as the podium. And, and they use it to great effect. It's to say, I think these are folks who would give us a nod when we find ourselves on Twitter or Instagram or wherever we hold forth in the new media space. I think it's very much in that tradition, Mm -hmm. but these conventions, evolve again out of two impulses right the one is that black men are being excluded from party politics they are being excluded still from state houses and yet they're not going to wait until someone invites them in to be political right to convene and there is a lot to talk about there's a lot to deliberate about Yes, civil rights, yes, anti-slavery, but the future of education, of labor, and much more. And it is indeed a tradition that doesn't wholly fall away even after the Civil War when now The halls of state legislatures, at least for a time, even the halls of Congress are open to Black men. There still is a strong sense of a need for autonomous, independent spaces in which to deliberate. Black women will pick up on this by the 1890s, forming the National Council of Negro Women, excuse me, the National Association of Colored Women in the 1890s. And this is an organization that stitches together grassroots clubs that are spread across the nation, uh, led by Black women in local communities, now have uh, a national hub and are working in concert. And yes, uh, that includes the tradition um, of the convention, of the big convening. And I think you're not wrong to recognize it is still Um, an important force in our political organizations like the NAACP, but in our religious communities, the AME church still every four years meets in a general conference where a great deal of church politics um, play out. So you're right to point out, I think the long old tradition of these large convenings. I, I think the last thing to say is because they're important for both the substance of what goes on, but they are also A kind of performance right an evidence that goes to demonstrating the important degree to which black americans are prepared wholly prepared to participate in state politics party politics men and women this is the evidence of that on display
1: and these are spaces where Women are not just attending as a helpmate, if you will, to to a male partner, but they are also active participants in the conversation and in what needs to happen and in the strategy. I often find as a strategist myself in helping to elect people all across the country or pass issue-based legislation, when I'm reading through the pages of what The conversations were, or the speeches or the pamphlets, if you go to Library Congress and all of those others, Mm -hmm. I can see the strategy in it. I can see um, the conversation as we get to the discussion of suffrage, of deciding that we need to include, we need to link and tie the plight of African Americans in this country to suffrage, and so that black women also need the vote. That that lynching, viewing through the eyes of Ida B. Wells, is part Mm -hmm. of a political conversation and we can leverage that argument of Black women's vote or women's vote in general with addressing this issue. There's strategy in that (laughs) of being (laughs) able to leverage power.
0: Absolutely, And, and of course that leads to tension and debate, right? Not everybody sees the goals, the objectives, the tactics, and the strategies in the same way, but one of the things that for me became uh, crystal clear in this work was the ways in which sometimes we encounter the movement for women's votes on the one hand and the movement for anti-lynching legislation as two separate stories. But it's clear for Black women, these are the same story because what they know is, yes, a federal amendment that opens the door to women's votes, but if there's still violence and intimidation unchecked, especially in the American South, who's going to go to the polls? Who's going to get to the polls? And I think that we've misunderstood, I think, too too often, right, the politics of lynching as somehow distinct or separate from the politics of women's votes. But through the perspective of the women I read about, you mentioned Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, right, Mary McLeod Bethune. These are women who see um, and live the connection, right, between the problem of being disenfranchised and the problem of violence there. It's all part of the same problem. And that's why the National Association of Colored Women can't be simply or only a suffrage association. It has to work on both fronts at the same time. Yeah.
1: And as we get to that conversation of suffrage, the opposition, right? So you have, you're fighting against white women and you're fighting against your own brothers, <laughs> who, you are sometimes
0: you
1: are yes. <laughs> who are standing in the way? One of the um, pieces in the introduction um, of Vanguard you talk about is some of the earliest articles in the Freedom's Journal, which painted mm-hmm. this description of what who, who black women were supposed to be is that we're supposed to be helpers to our men with grace. And we're supposed to do all of this work, even in talking about the church movement, we're supposed to help. We're supposed to work outside of the house, help him and stay quiet. I was just like, that's a lot of work.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, like, it is. And what black women say, now we're going back nearly 200 years, is you're squandering, right? Our talents. You're I squandering love that. our strength, Right. We are a community that faces tremendous challenges. This is Mariah Stewart, right? How is it that you would squander, that you would leave us in the kitchen to the pots and to the meals? Meals are important, right? Home is important, but we have talents that go well beyond that. And we are not a community that can afford or that should squander that.
1: Yeah, at that, those particular arguments from another women, like you mentioned, Maria Stewart is, I, I think there's one, I can't remember her name at this moment where she was talking about the, her ability to think mathematically, to think that you would relegate me to just measuring out flour, mm-hmm. to bake mm-hmm. bread and cakes, rather mm-hmm. than investing in our community. I was like, tell it, sis. <laughs> I was like, I was this, this mathematical brain i have and you're making you're just like letting me use it to measure out flour. like seriously like yeah. we're, we're losing out as a people as a community as a democracy right how That's racism right. actually stunts our growth stunts mm-hmm. the growth of democracy because you limit women because you limit people of color because you limit the talent and relegate people to a certain set it limits how we can grow overall as as Human
0: beings. And I think one of the uh, facets and the nuances of the philosophy that's evolving in these early decades is the important sense that women's power is not power for power's sake, right? Women's power is a power for a collective vision. And I was really struck by um, how frequently the women in Vanguard speak about humanity. When they talk about what it is they aspire to, what they talk about their purpose, they speak about humanity. And that is a powerfully bold and capacious vision, especially in early America, where politics, social life, law, economics, all are so fractured by ideas about difference. It is black women who say, no, actually, we're here for humanity and that's a very um, ambitious goal but I think it's one that for me resonates even in the 21st century when I watch black women in politics I'll invoke leader Stacey Abrams and leader Abrams doesn't work for the voting rights of black women though of course she does in part she doesn't only work for the voting rights of black Americans Mm -hmm. Leader Abrams is working for the voter rights of all Americans. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, um, is overlooked sometimes when the message comes from a black woman, as if somehow her vision is narrow or simple um, or too constrained, when in fact, black women, so often the tradition is to speak about humanity. I think
1: that's a really important point in terms, as I've always been taught, whether in faith and in politics, in that you, as you gain knowledge, as you gain the skills and resources, it's to empower others, right? It's not just for your own political power. And we say here on the show, it's not enough for you to get this information listening to the show if you are not then um, going out and sharing that information and empowering others for that as well. How can it be? That you love the most unlovable What a me, a me How could you see Your life was the only gift I'll To be free It's amazing with you Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams. So I want to switch gears a bit and talk a bit because we are in this anniversary um, year as you mentioned and talk a little bit more in depth just before we go about the 19th amendment and about the suffrage um, movement. We know the the lore and, and the stories in terms of how black women were treated in this movement that it wasn't just uh, a movement that began with some random white women in Seneca Falls all the, by themselves <laughs> but mm-hmm. that it was part of um, an ongoing tradition what I'd like to ask you is what was there anything that surprised you as you delved into the research of this or anything nuanced that we don't know about this history
0: I'll tell you something that happened to me as I was um, finishing this book and it was that I work every day at home in an office with a portrait of my own grandmother hanging on the wall I don't know Some days she's watching over me, some days she's egging me on, but she's (laughs) always there. And my grandmother was born at the end of the 19th century, the daughter of a former slave. And I became more and more self-conscious about the fact that I didn't know her story. So one of my big surprises, if you will, was that this book and telling the many stories of black women's uh, political struggles led me to dig deeper into my own family and to learn about my own grandmother. I didn't know where she had been in 1920 or what she had been doing. And I looked for her in St. Louis, Missouri, um, where she lived just a few blocks from her parents. She was a young mother in 1920, but I couldn't quite find her In politics, even if I could find her raising two young children there. And I followed her. By 1926, she's moved to Greensboro, North Carolina. Her husband, my grandfather, is about to become president of Bennett College. Mm. And they settle in Greensboro, and I went looking for her in the state archives, thinking maybe she voted in 1926 after they unpacked on the Bennett campus. But I discovered all the records had been disappeared the state had not preserved the records of women's votes in 1920s including those of my grandmother if she did in fact vote so i was feeling pretty discouraged but i was very fortunate to come upon an interview that she gave in the 1970s a historian bill chafe was writing a history of civil rights in greensboro and he interviewed her and she was talking not about 1920 at all not about the 19th amendment she was talking about modern civil rights and the vote mm. and how the young women at bennett in the 1950s and 1960, organize, go out into the community, register folks, get them to the polls. And I realized that if we stop telling the story of Black women in the vote in 1920, in a sense, we miss the story. <laughs> because for Black women in this country, so many of them, the story really is centered in the modern civil rights era and the road to the Voting Rights Act in 1965. So I turned out to be surprised, in a sense, to learn a story I felt like I should have known, but I had never had a chance to ask her about. Mm. And it really then justified my continuing this book for a few more chapters to be sure that readers understood that 1920 for Black women was not an end. It was a beginning. And it was the beginning of a new movement, a tough, dangerous, hard-fought movement for Black voting rights um, against Jim Crow that takes us all the way until 1965. I hadn't understood that when I started the book.
1: And I think I think that's a powerful moment as well in terms of being able or wanting the desire to search for your own family's narrative in the mm-hmm. history. My grandmother's ninety four and mm-hmm. I'm a caregiver and I often ask her about different points because we read things of in dates and histories as if um, these are people that are that we don't have connections with <laughs> or that there aren't people alive now that sort of experience that and so to have a grandmother, grew up in North Carolina in the time of being 94 nearly a you know century herself mm-hmm. to go and ask her what was this and thank- and thankful that she has her full mental capacity to be able to think back that far and I asked her I've asked her it several times about voting and with one of the things I learned in asking her the question is we hear a lot I have this joke that I say that everybody s- says now that they were on the bridge marching for voting mm-hmm. rights but mm-hmm. the reality is that no every Everybody wasn't. (laughs) And even everybody from an African American standpoint were on the bridge. Mm -hmm. And her story is different, right? To her, the terrorism that happened to people regarding registering and acting to vote has scared her and scarred her for life. That she has not voted. That that is a reality. And so that didn't occur to me that existed. I thought everybody, surely, participated and engage but that she because her brothers were so involved in the process and the terrorism that she yes. witnessed or knew of that it scared her enough not to and that uh disconnect from there and so i encourage people all the time that if you have living relatives, ask them the question about these pieces of our history and engagement and what they thought. To ask my family, who is a huge church family involved Mm -hmm. in the United Church of God and asking Mm -hmm. them, what was it like when women couldn't preach or get ordained? (laughs) <laughs> like what did y'all mm-hmm. talk over on the side do you remember <laughs> <laughs> witnessing it like before and mm-hmm. now majority of the ministers and pastors in my family are the women so like yeah. that turnover that happens from there so I think that's an important part of finding the story of your own family and that helps to make the connection overall to our overall history
0: yeah, I thank you for sharing that that perspective of your grandmother. Sherilyn Eiffel, who today is head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, wrote a book more than ten years ago now. I think there's a new edition out, called On the Courthouse Lawn. And it is a book about exactly what you describe, about the legacy of terror of racial terror um, in the United States and how it continued for generations to suppress African-American voter turnout in Maryland, which is her case study, that the memory of lynching persists even when the practice is, to an important degree, curtailed as an experience, it lives in people's memories and people are reluctant to head to the polls. That is the power of that kind of terror. And it is, you're right, a very important part of this story. I think that maybe it's not unique to this story. There is an impulse to romanticize many parts of african american history including the struggle for voting rights when they when these stories enter the mainstream and one of the things that was important for me to confront myself and then to find words for was the violence and for black women there's an extraordinary degree of personal risk in living a public life speaking from podiums or the pulpit traveling advocating for your own voting rights, the rights of your community. There is a great deal of danger in this story. There's a great deal of courage, but there is a great deal of violence, including sexual violence, that I think sometimes gets, how can I put it, gets uh, set to the side when we tell those stories. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And it's an important part, too. uh, We don't gain much from the romanticized story. Mm -hmm. We gain by telling the truth. As ugly as it may be and as horrific as it may be, I think it's important for us and for America to confront its ugliness so that we don't repeat it. (laughs) Because if you believe that we couldn't possibly do that then it's really easy to fall into the same pattern from there. One aspect, as you mentioned, of after the passage, I I came across and I cite this piece all of the time in the crisis in 1921, March 1921. So this is after the first national presidential election there Mm -hmm. is a a recalling of black women participating in the franchise in some places for the first time. Mm -hmm. And the citing is the colored women have made a splendid record at their first national election, applying Mm -hmm. for registration in large numbers. They endured purposeful delays and deliberate insults. They have shown themselves in States like Georgia and Louisiana to be more modern and sensible than their white sisters. And throughout the country, they cast a large and influential vote. And I, I I read that and then went down the rabbit hole in Georgia and Louisiana <laughs> um, mm-hmm. to, to, of records that are available electronically mm-hmm. and to see the stories of black women when some counties or some towns and say, well, you can't register to vote until all of the white women who want to vote yes. register. And they're yeah. like, OK. Mm-hmm. And then they go get their little picnic baskets and they sit mm-hmm. on the line and they like mm-hmm. wait until mm-hmm. all of them and they register on the last day and sort of turn out from there or that they are pestering their husbands to I'm going to go register and I'm going to bring and it's just like these narratives that we use now of me chairing higher heights back and saying black women don't go to the polls alone we move Mm -hmm. our households we move our sorority we move our (laughs) church right Mm -hmm. that it is that these things are connected that you can read these pieces in history of black women doing this and then you see the immediate crackdown yeah. It's that this is way too much empowerment. This is way too much. They now have a say. And I. there's something I use in speeches all the time where I tell people the simple... And- phrase that we use that people died for your right to vote is very Mm -hmm. simplistic. Rather than saying they recognize that the right to vote was a tool for Mm self-determination. They wanted you to be able to have a voice and say on electing the sheriff. They wanted you to have a vote and say so in terms of what your tax dollars would be spent on. They Mm -hmm. wanted you to have a vote and say so in terms of education policy because they lived under regimes, if you will, in which they had to contribute to a system that they had no say in terms of how it operated. And so certainly the history of uh, that you have written, I can't wait to September 8th <laughs> mm-hmm. to get You're this book and yeah. to dive in a little bit more on this. What do you hope people walk away with after reading it?
0: I hope that we recognize that the history of voter suppression is deeply Um, woven into the fabric of this country, and that for Black Americans in nearly every generation, we've had to struggle, and we will struggle here again in 2020. That is part of um, how American democracy works, because we make it work. And I do hope that generally readers will Stop wondering, slackjawed about how Black women in the 21st century have come to be such a force in American politics. There's no mystery to that, if you understand the history. In fact, it's quite plain, right, that Black women have organized, they have thought, they have deliberated, they have taken risks, and they have insisted on a place at the table of American politics. And that's the story that Vanguard tells. And so when we see, as we will this fall, more than 120 black women running for seats in Congress, that's no mistake. That is by design. And black men have been working toward that and much more for many generations. I want people to understand what it is they're seeing when they head to the polls um, on election day. And it is a hard-won battle that Black women have waged, and to some degree, we might say, are even winning in the 21st century. Professor Joe, I
1: look forward to after COVID and we can resume things normal again, meeting you in person, and maybe we can just nerd out and go down the rabbit hole together.
0: Absolutely, I I would love that, but I really appreciate, I've enjoyed the conversation very much. I appreciate you making time for me.
1: Thank you so very much. And thank you so very much for lending your voice, for writing these books. And then maybe I should have you back and we should talk um, in detail about birthright citizenship as well to talk about that. But thank you so very much for joining us. And I hope you'll come back for further discussions. Terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I really do hope that you enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you to Dr. Martha Jones for joining us. And again, please make sure to check out her upcoming book, Vanguard. And also, do your homework and go listen to the full speech uh, by Barbara Jordan. We'll be back next week with more Sunday Civics here on Sirius XM Channel 126, where talk becomes action.